We're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 42, the whole chapter. Isaiah chapter 42, beginning in verse 1, it says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail, nor be discouraged. Till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Save the world. Saving the world seems to be the theme of books and movies and made for TV series. There's yet another bunch of movies that are going to be coming out and it's all has as the theme where a hero is confronted with the tragedies and the circumstances of the world in which they live and the rescue operation that takes place. Rescue resonates with people who need hope, who need help, who need encouragement, people who find themselves in this downward spiral of Sinking sand, the depression, the despair, the heavy burden, the constant and brazen temptations that we experience in our culture and society. We live in a world where people are exposed to unimaginable evil. And here's the challenge. We can sometimes find ourselves growing insensitive and indifferent to it all. Another shooting. Another shooting in Las Vegas. Another shooting, another this, another that. And pretty soon you know that you experienced the jaded circumstance when the pain and the problems no longer matter to you. Remember what Isaiah is doing. He is continuing the theme of what it means to be set free. Of what it means to be delivered. Set free from sin. Set free from bondage. Set free in order to worship God. In chapter 40, remember, we're set free by God's greatness. In chapter 41, we're set free by God's power. His ability to control the world. And to control every human being in it. And now in chapter 42, we discover that we are set free By God's perfect and prepared servant. And we know who the servant is. It's the Messiah. And chapter 42 will also begin a series of what's known as servant songs. There will be four of them. In this first section that we just read in verses 1 through 4, the Lord sends his servant. In verses 5 through 9, the servant will save his people. In verses 10 through 17, the people will respond to the Messiah. And the writer, Isaiah, will record the response. For some, they will embrace the Messiah. Others will reject the Messiah. And then in verses 18 through 25, there is the summons that the Lord extends to everyone who's willing to listen To his promises. We need help. We need hope. What do you do when you're overwhelmed by discouragement? When you're overwhelmed by depression? When you're overwhelmed by emptiness? By tension? By pressure? By poverty? By insufficient income? By unemployment? By a sense of failure? By unrealized dreams? What do you do when you find yourself in constant Bondage to your addictions. And here's part of the answer. The Lord knows our desperate need. And because the Lord knows our desperate need, and here's part of the plan, and here's part of what Isaiah reveals, God 
understands our desperate need. God has great compassion and great concern. And out of compassion and concern, he will send his servant, Jesus Christ, into the world. God, the Lord God, will give power to endure Power to conquer hardship, power to endure pain, power to throw off addiction, power in spite of all that threatens to crush us, in spite of everything that threatens to destroy us. Jesus will come and meet the needs of the human heart. And remember something about that heart. Remember something about your heart. God created your heart to love him, to have friendship with him and fellowship with him. And so, again, 170 years before the Babylonian captivity will take place, Isaiah prophesies about the coming servant, the suffering servant. And here's part of the challenge. Part of the challenge is Isaiah has already said that the Messiah is going to come and he's going to rule the nations. But now we discover that he comes in humility and gentleness and meekness. So which is it? Is he coming in power and Glory? Is he coming in humility and meekness? You know the right answer. The right answer is he's coming both. He will come in humility and meekness as the suffering servant to die on the cross. But he will come again. Jesus will come again as the conquering Messiah. He will restore the nations and he will bring justice to the earth. And look what it says. The prophet writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Behold. My servant, whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. Behold, by the way, you know what it means. It means look. It's calling attention to the suffering servant. The idea is to look in such a way that you will see the prophecy tells the reader to carefully consider, completely consider my servant. Look with a penetrating gaze. Look in such a way that you'll understand what it is that you're looking at. The prophet is inviting you to take a good, hard look at the Messiah. That's who the servant is. And of course, we know that that's Jesus. Because Jesus is God's servant... He's completely devoted to God. And because he's completely devoted to God, he is devoted to the things of God. The servant will please God in everything. And so the New Testament tells us that Jesus pleased his father in everything that he did. And because he's God's servant, he is devoted to God's mission. And God's mission, of course is to send his son to do the father's will. And what is the father's will? It's to address that very, very deep problem that's inside of each and every one of us. And so we discover something. The servant is both held by God and appointed by God. He says, behold, my servant whom I uphold, that is, the father has the son in his hand, my elect one in whom my soul delights. In other words, it is God who sent Jesus. It wasn't the religious establishment that sent Jesus. It wasn't worldly imagination that sent Jesus. It wasn't the wisdom of men that, that Jesus came. Remember, Jesus came from heaven. We're learning about that for those of you who are here on Sunday morning. God sent Jesus. Remember in John chapter 3, when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, he said, only the Son has come down from heaven. This Sunday we're going to learn, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Jesus is not only appointed, but he is anointed. Look what it says, I have put my spirit upon him. The Father will put the Holy Spirit upon the Son. Jesus was filled with the fullness of God's Holy Spirit. By the way, the Holy Spirit 
would fully equip Jesus for the task at hand. Throughout history, God has given his servants the Holy Spirit. Throughout time and and circumstance, whenever a great work was to be done, God would send his spirit. And by the way, we know in the New Testament that God has sent his spirit for you. But Jesus would come and he would receive the full the spirit without measure. That means because of his righteousness, because of his purity, because of his humility, because of his complete submission and dependence upon God, he has the spirit without measure. Nothing will prevent the servant from accomplishing the Lord's will. That's the idea. The servant is not sent by an earthly king or a human power. God will send him. And the coming of the Messiah will not happen through human mechanism, through human manipulation, through man-made prophecies, through wishful thinking. The Messiah will not come through human wisdom, but through the infinite wisdom of the infinite Lord. And the Lord delights in the Messiah. He delights in his nature. He delights in his character. And the Lord expresses that delight On two occasions in the New Testament, you'll remember at the baptism of Jesus, remember when the voice opens from heaven and the father says, this is my beloved son. And of course, at his transfiguration. And in verse two, it says, he will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. In verse one, remember The children of Israel, the people of Judah and Jerusalem, can't manipulate God into doing something that God has already planned to do. He's already made a provision for the salvation and for the deliverance. And then there's a description. He will not cry out. He will not raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. To hear the idea is Jesus comes in gentleness and humility. He doesn't come like other world leaders. This servant comes in such a way that he doesn't trample down other people. Whenever we've had world leaders, they've usually risen to power at the expense of others. You've all heard the expression, whoever has, you've heard of the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But you've heard about the other golden rule. He who has the gold rules. That's the way human leadership works. The ladder of success is usually climbed on the backs of poor people. But he will not cry out. He won't raise his voice. He doesn't come like other world leaders. The idea is that the Messiah, the servant, isn't loud. He isn't abrasive. He isn't abusive. He doesn't draw undue attention to himself. Jesus comes to us. In the appearance of an ordinary human being. Isaiah will later prophesy that the Messiah has no extraordinary physical characteristics that we should take notice. You'll remember in the New Testament when when the religious leaders along with the Roman soldiers come to arrest Jesus. They said, how will we know it's Jesus? And remember, Judas doesn't go, you can't miss him. He's the one who glows in the dark. When you come to the garden scene, whenever, if you see just someone glowing and they're going, that's how you'll know the glow in the dark guy. No, as a matter of fact, he has no appearance that people should notice him. I suspect he didn't look like Brad Pitt. I suspect he looked like a normal, ordinary person. He wasn't ripped like a bodybuilder. He didn't have hair like a TV broadcaster. Hair that you can trust. Jesus is appointed. He's anointed. But he's also approachable. You have access to him. He isn't a leader who's far, far away. And look at what it says in verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. You have to understand what's, what's being said here. A bruised reed he will not break. In that culture, in that society, you used reeds for a number of different purposes. But you know what you did with a broken reed? You threw it away. 
You take a reed that is broken and you cast it aside. This is Isaiah's way of saying hurting people, broken people, desperate people. Jesus doesn't simply throw them away like someone else's trash. What other people are willing to throw away, Jesus wants to keep. The smoking flax is something that doesn't easily ignite. For those of you who have grown up in in circumstances where you had to light fires or wood, and and, and you can imagine if you've got a smoldering flax, it just does nothing but smoke and smoke and smoke, but there's no fire. It doesn't catch fire easily. Imagine a match that's soaked in water. It doesn't catch fire easily. A piece of wood that's soaked in water, it doesn't ignite easily. Over and over again in the New Testament, we see Jesus is the good shepherd in search of his sheep. He's the physician wanting to heal the sick. This is the New Testament Messiah who sees the blind and he has compassion on them. He sees the deaf and he has compassion on them. He sees people suffering from terminal diseases and he has compassion on them. I had an uncle who was very, very strange. Just like some of you. My uncle's idea of a good time was going to the dump and going through the dump and looking for trash that other people had thrown away. He would find boxes of National Geographics and books that people had thrown away and couches that people had thrown away and aluminum cans and all of this stuff. He would go through this pile of debris and he would say, oh, I I can use this and I can use this. and Oh, I want that. Oh, isn't this cool? And when you're eight and nine and ten years old and you're going through the dump and you go, oh, look at this. Here's a Tonka truck. Here's a whole box of Tinker Toys. Now, those of you who are old enough to remember what Tinker Toys, this is like the major big deal before Legos. But that's part of what he's saying about the servant. The person who's broken that nobody else has any use for. The person whose marriage is broken, whose heart is broken, whose life is broken. That person that other people come and they say, it's time to throw you away. I I no longer have any use for you. You're way beyond repair. You're damaged goods. You're a failure. You have failed. Jesus says, "I I want you. And I want you. Satan will tell you that you're nothing but a broken reed. You're an empty shell. You're good for nothing. You're smoking flax, all smoke, no fire. You can't do anything that is helpful. And you actually wind up doing things that are harmful. But Jesus doesn't see the broken reed. He doesn't just see the smoking flax. He sees you in the way that he's going to make you. You may see yourself and your circumstances hopeless and worthless and helpless and meaningless. But Jesus doesn't see you that way. He sees what you will become. You see, sometimes we have this image of Jesus that he is in heaven and he is constantly disappointed with your particular failure. But nothing could be further from the truth. The Messiah, the servant, will bring forth justice for truth. How is that possible? How is it possible that the servant... The Messiah who has come to do the Father's will, who knows the exact circumstances of your brokenness and your failure, because in justice, the truth is you deserve to die. Well, the prophet Isaiah is going to reveal what's going to happen. The Messiah, the servant himself, will embrace Justice for truth. Jesus is appointed 
and anointed and accessible. But he's also affirming. Look what it says in verse 4. He will not fail nor be discouraged. Read it again. He will not fail nor be discouraged. The servant is not going to fail in his mission. He is not going to be discouraged from his commitment to rescue till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. The Messiah won't fail. He will establish justice in the earth. The coastlands, by the way, are the many countries that occupy the planet Earth. This is another way of saying the nations or the Gentiles and they shall wait for his law. His law, of course, is his righteous rule and his word, the things that he speaks and the things that he says. It is the word of God. And you'll note something. Isaiah repeats the word justice three times in the set passage. Three times. He will bring forth justice in verse one to the Gentiles. Verse 3, he will bring forth justice for truth. Verse 4, he will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice. By the way, what do you suppose that means? What does the word justice mean? It means to act in such a way with complete virtue and complete decency. Justice means he will always do what is right. He will never do what is wrong. The justice of the Lord will eventually eliminate evil. He will banish wickedness and wicked rebellion. By the way, the word used in Exodus chapter 26, verse 30 of the plan of the tabernacle, the blueprint of God that's revealed in heaven. He uses the exact same word in Exodus 26, 30. And you shall raise up the tabernacle according to the pattern which you were shown on the mountain. Justice is the pattern. That God has established for the world. In other words, the Lord's blueprint for humanity. His pattern, his blueprint for humanity. Is to make God's will known. Ray Ortland writes in his wonderful little commentary on this section. He says he knows how to make us happy and fulfilled. And through his servant, Jesus, he's bringing his plan down from heaven to reorder human civilization in a beautiful way. God's kingdom will come and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We were made for it. Justice is another way of saying God will bring his will to the earth. Ortland goes on and declares that justice encompasses all of our longings for a better life and a better world. It's everything that you used to dream about. Perfection, a just world to Isaiah, is human society as God has always meant it to be, without corrupting idolatries. You see, and this is the difference between the biblical view of justice and the non-biblical view of justice. The biblical view of justice is looking at a world that in humility and submission to God is willing to do what God wants. For people in this world, justice is freedom from dysfunction. A just world to Isaiah is human society as God meant it to be with no corrupting idolatries. Injustice is more than a political dysfunction. It's a spiritual evil. In other words, spiritual Injustice is a denial of God. But here's what the prophet prophesies. That Jesus is able. Jesus is able by his very presence as the Messiah to bend all of human history to his will. He is anointed. He is accessible. He is able And now we see the servant that will save his people. We'll read verses five through nine. It says, thus God, thus says God, the Lord, 
who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, from those who sit in darkness, from the prison house. Does that sound familiar to you? should these words that you hear repeated in Isaiah are filled throughout the New Testament the servant comes in humility and grace having described the character of the servant now we see the revelation of the mission of the servant a mission that won't fail and when we begin to consider the mission that God sends his son and that some will accept him and others will reject him some will defy him some will curse him Some will ignore him. But in spite of all that, in spite of all of the people who will look at God and say, I don't care about redemption. I don't care about salvation. I don't care what you want to do for me. God is not going to let the rejection of some dissuade him from accomplishing his will. In verse five, it says, thus says God, the Lord. Who created the heavens and stretched them out. Who spread forth the earth that, and that which comes from it. Who gives breath to the people on it. And spirit to those who walk on it. Again, he appeals to the fact that he is the uncreated creator of all things. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. He's still speaking of the servant. The servant who will come. And will hold your hand. The father will hold the hand of the servant Messiah. I will keep you. And look what else it says. And give you as a covenant to the people. The basis of the promise is the servant himself. As a light to the Gentiles. To open blind eyes. To bring out prisoners from the prison. Those who sit in darkness from the prison house. He's coming for deliverance. To open the blind eyes. To set free the captives. No wonder Jesus uses the book of Isaiah As the starting point of his own public ministry, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel. The Lord's guarantee and he guarantees the success and the mission of the servant. Hundreds of years before Jesus ever came, the Lord God said, I will send him. He will fulfill his mission. And again, this isn't a human guarantee. This isn't even Isaiah's guarantee. This is God's guarantee. When you're out and about shopping for Christmas presents and you begin to look at all of the trash, I mean all of the treasure that's out there. And the people begin to tell you. Hey, this has a guarantee. How good is any guarantee? It's only as good as the person who makes the guarantee. God is the creator of the universe, of the sun and the moon and the stars, the maker of life on the planet, who gives breath, spirit to the people. We are alive, each and every one of us, by the sheer pleasure, by the sheer majesty of God. God's righteousness guarantees the servant's success. God will always do the righteous thing. And this is an important point, even though you may miss it. God will always do what's right, not what's wrong. He will do the righteous thing. Now, I need you to understand this. What is the righteous thing at this point? The desperate, the hurting, the person who's estranged from God, the world desperately, unmistakably needs a savior. The world desperately, unmistakably, needs rescue 
salvation, deliverance. You know, it's interesting to me, even thinking about Jesus unraveling the scroll of Isaiah, knowing that God was holding him in his hand, knowing that God would keep him, knowing that God would give him as a covenant to the people, a light to the Gentiles. And now we see something else that's remarkable, that the Messiah isn't simply the Messiah for the Jews, but he's the Messiah for the Gentiles. For the nations, the father will hold the son's hand. God will keep his servant. God will protect his servant. Nothing, no, nothing, no, nothing will keep the servant from accomplishing God's perfect will. The Messiah's mission will be twofold. Remember, the mission, the mission will address the deepest need of the human heart. And what is the deepest need of the human heart? The deepest need of the human heart. It's for forgiveness of sin, redemption and reconciliation to God. No wonder over and over again in the New Testament, the angel says, you will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. First, the Lord will establish a new and an everlasting covenant to the people, a light to the Gentiles. And again, understand the significance of what's happening. Jesus himself, the servant himself, is the basis of the covenant. It isn't a religion. It isn't a church. It isn't a theological construct. It isn't a philosophical set of rules and regulations. The source of the covenant, the source of the promise is the servant himself. God will make Jesus Christ himself the basis of friendship the basis of relationship and again we see this in Isaiah 700 BC and we see this in John chapter 3 when Jesus is speaking to the religious leader Nicodemus when he makes friendship and relationship all about accepting or rejecting him Abraham was promised a seed David was promised a descendant who would rule as king. Think carefully. God did not promise Abraham a religion. God did not promise David a religion. He promised Abraham a son. He promised David a a son. And what's the biggest shock of all? That the new covenant would be established by the death of the servant. Through his death, the servant will bring people into a right relationship with God, make it possible for God to forgive sins, to satisfy their thirst and their hunger for God and fulfill the innermost longings of their heart in order to experience life and love and friendship and relationship. Jesus talks about it in Matthew chapter 26, 28, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So the servant, the Messiah, will be a light to the nations, to the Gentiles. Do you understand what that means? It means in part that no longer does the rest of the world have to stumble in darkness. Over and over again, I'm asked on my radio program, over and over again, people will come up to me and they'll ask me the age old question. What about people who never heard about Jesus? What about people who's never heard about the gospel? What about pygmies in Africa, headhunters in Borneo? What about the people who never, ever, who have no clue about God and no clue about Jesus? The answer is found in Acts chapter 17, verse 26, where Paul is in part talking to the Epicureans and the Stoics, the philosophers in Athens, he's speaking about God, the creator. And he says in Acts 17, 26, and he that's speaking of God, God has made from one blood that is Adam and Eve. God has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope 
for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Dark, yes. Groping, yes. But people weren't left in the dark and groping. God wanted to be found. And so Isaiah predicts in 700 B.C. that the servant would come and he would be a light to the Gentiles. The servant would be the light. Here's the idea. It's over. The servant has come. You no longer have to grope and fumble and stumble through through life. Jesus is here. Jesus is here to help you handle life's problems and life's hardships. The search is over. The groping is over. Christ comes. He appears. And he tells you the truth about God. He whispers and the ear of a religious leader in John chapter 3, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. He's not looking for you to continue in darkness, and he's not looking for you to continue estranged from him. People no longer have to wonder, where did I come from? Well, you know what? You came from your mom and dad who came from their mom and dad who came from their mom and dad all the way back to Adam and Eve. Why am I here? You're here to glorify God. You are here. You exist to have friendship and fellowship with God. Well, what's real? The only thing that's real is everything that has to do with God and Jesus. You see, this world is real, but it isn't substantial. It will pass away. The Bible says heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of God will remain forever. Your friendship and your relationship with God will will remain forever. The darkness of the emptiness, the darkness of ignorance, the darkness of restlessness, the darkness of anger, the darkness of fear, the darkness of loneliness. The lights come. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 16, it says, The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region and the shadow of death, light has dawned. The Messiah has come. And look what it says in verses 8 and 9. I am the Lord, that is my name. And my glory I will not give to another nor my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Remember, he's already predicted that Cyrus is going to come, and he's going to play that out even more fully in the chapters ahead. God has already spoken in advance what will happen. The Lord ensures the mission. He ensures the Messiah, and he does it by his own name. Here, here's his point that he's trying to make. If the Messiah doesn't come, I'll cease to be God. But through time and space, the children of Israel will return to the land of promise. The children will return. The temple is rebuilt. Joseph and Mary will have a baby. The baby will be born in Bethlehem. The baby will grow up. And the servant will come. And look what it says, the people's response to the Messiah in verse 10. Look what it says. Sing to the Lord a new song. And his praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you coastlands and you inhabitants of them. In verse 10, it's going, okay, in light of everything that we've heard from verses 1 through 9, it's time for a song. This is the point where everybody sings. You remember Lawrence Welk? Okay, everyone, everybody sing. 
And then it says in verse 11, let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voice. The villages that Kedar inhabits, all the inhabitants of Sela, which is the rock city of Petra, sing. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up his zeal like like a man of war, he shall cry out, yes, out, shout aloud, he shall prevail against his enemies. I have held my peace a long time. I've been still and restrained myself. Now I will cry like a woman in labor. I will pant and gasp at once. I will, weigh, I will lay waste the mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will make the rivers coastlands and I will dry up the pools. I will bring the blind by a way they did not know. I will lead them in paths they have not known. I will make darkness light before them. And crooked places straight. These things I will do for them. And not forsake them. They shall be turned back. They shall be greatly ashamed who trusted in carved images, who say to the molded images, you are our God. Here's what's happening. They burst out in song. It's a song of praise. It's a song of worship to the Lord. The the, the prophet invites, based on the fact that God will send his servant, that deliverance is inevitable. He says, sing to the Lord a new song. We know that the prophet is calling, listen carefully, the whole world to worship God for the sake of Messiah and his servant, Jesus Christ. This is the prophet's way of saying, everyone, everywhere. Sing for joy. The servant is coming. Now remember, it's in the prophetic past tense. The Lord speaks as if an event has already been accomplished. Again, Ray Ortland writes, and I quote, The greatest work of grace is when unbelief falls away and our hearts melt into gladness in God. He wants everyone to be released into true worship. This is why Christian churches have public, not private worship services. We welcome the whole world, but we aren't the ones extending the invitation. God is. He has opened the door to idolaters from all cultures so that they can experience something new, worthy of praise in a new song, unquote. Isn't that interesting? That's why we have public and not private worship. That's why anyone is welcome to come into our church. That's why anyone and everyone is welcome to come in. By the way, when anyone and everyone is welcome, is there risk? Is there the potential for harm? When you let just anyone in? But guess what? The invitation is extended. It says, let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voice. The villages that Kedar inhabits. That's the, the, the surrounding area of, of Judea and Jerusalem. Let the inhabitants of Sela sing. This is Edom and the capital of, of that state. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. The idea is, guess what? There are no restrictions. There are no restrictions. Everyone is allowed to sing. Jew and Gentile. Former enemies. Everyone sing. And then in verse 12, let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. Again, what are the coastlands? It's all of the Gentile nations. Let every nation, let every nation sing. It's like that song that you hear on Caleb. It's the song of the redeemed rising from the African plain. It's the song of Asian believers filled with God's holy fire. By the way, everyone needs to come to Christ. Every nation, all languages, all people groups. Do you know what? 
Isaiah is telling us? Listen carefully to what I'm about to say, because if you forget everything else, remember this part. Jesus unites. Idolatry divides. Jesus unites. It's idolatry that divides. When people will say, Christianity is the main reason why there's so much pain and problems in the world. What a lie from hell. Christianity is not the problem, and Christ is not the problem. Jesus is the servant who saves. Jesus is the servant who forgives. Jesus is the servant who reconciles. It's idolatry that divides. It's idolatry that creates a Hindu state. It's idolatry that creates an Islamic state. It's idolatry that creates an atheistic state. It is the idolatry and the rebellion and the human heart that resists God and that rejects God that divides the nations and creates the pain and the problem and the sin and the suffering as each and every person tries to live their life apart from God. The gospel unites. The gospel reconciles. Whenever you see people divided, they're divided over their idols. True worship unites people together. And there's nothing greater than for us to sing a new song, to glorify God and enjoy the Lord together. And so here's what Isaiah is is singing. He's singing a servant song 700 years before Jesus is ever born. Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinner reconciled. Do you realize that every time you open up your mouth and you begin to sing the praises of God that he has sent the servant, the Messiah, to come and forgive us and reconcile us, you're singing the servant's song. In heaven, you'll only have two playlists on your heavenly iPod. You'll have a category entitled worship and you'll have another Entitled, Victory to the Lamb. And look what it says in verse 13. The Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out, yes, shout aloud. He shall prevail against his enemies. In verse 14, I've held my peace a long time. I've been still and restrained myself. Now I will cry like a woman in labor. I will pant and gasp at once. What do these two similes have in common? What is he talking about? What does a man getting ready to go to war and a woman getting ready to have a baby have to do with the Lord? Here's the point that the prophet's making. God has fought the battle and won. God, like a pregnant woman who's getting ready to give birth to a baby, has now given birth to the baby. And now there is victory. And now there is life. That's the point that he's making. In the servant There is victory and there is life. God's resolve, the grace of God, the resolve of God. He will settle for nothing less. He will settle for nothing less than your victory and your life. He will settle for nothing less than joy in him. Now, here's the deal. No matter what it will cost him. God is prepared to fight for our salvation. And he's willing to suffer for our salvation. A man of war and a woman who's giving birth, he's willing to fight, he's willing to suffer. But you're not, are you? 
If something's inconvenient, you're out. If it means confrontation, you're out. If it means pain or hardship, you're out. You sing the song, make me like you, make me like you. You are a servant. Make me one, two. What are you willing to sacrifice? What are you willing to suffer? You know what's interesting to me? You don't have to sacrifice anything. Or suffer anything. Because the sacrifice of Jesus and the suffering of Jesus has wrought your salvation. You can suffer from now till doomsday and it's not going to add even one sliver to your salvation. This is why... The New Testament saints counted it joy that they could be identified with Jesus in his suffering. Remember what Paul wrote? Oh, that I might know him. In his suffering. What a bizarre thing to pray. And look what it says in verses 15 through 17. I will lay waste the mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will make the rivers coastlands. I will dry up the pools. I will bring the blind by a way they did not know. I will lead them in paths they have not known. I will make darkness light before them and crooked places straight. These Things I will do for them and not forsake them. They shall not turned, be turned back. They shall be greatly ashamed who trusted in carved images, who say to molded images, you are our gods. Do you understand what he's saying? The Lord is going to do whatever it takes in order to make sure that the promise takes place. Living free of idols is going to be a new path for the people of Jerusalem and Judah, living idol free is a new path for most of us. Living a life quite apart from the little gods and goddesses that you've made a part of your heart is going to be very, very difficult. It's going to be difficult to go places that you've never been before. But guess what? God's willing to lead you. Living free of idols is a new path. For most of us, living free from the idols of addiction, of self-preoccupation, of religiosity, living free from the idols that give us pain or, or give us pleasure and make the pain go away. But here's the promise of God. He'll take you to new places. The Lord wants to take you to a place. Listen carefully. The Lord wants to take you to a place where you are helpless without him. So he grabs you and he, he begins to lead you. And you don't have the comfort and the security of the things that you used to trust in and rely upon. You don't have the comfort and security that you once had. The Lord is in effect saying, trust me, follow me. The Lord is in effect saying, if you trust me. If you will follow me, I'll show you how to live a whole new life. But look what happens to people who aren't willing to cross the line, who aren't willing to follow the Lord. What happens to the people who are content in their idolatry? What will happen to the people who are still in love with themselves, still in love with their lusts? still clinging to the little man-made fabrications that they cling to. They'll be ashamed. And then the Lord summons everyone to believe his promises. Look at verse 18. Hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see. This is a recurring theme in the New Testament when he's talking to the religious leaders. Unplug your ears Open your eyes. Understand that salvation is right in front of you. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as he who is perfect? And blind as the Lord's servant? 
Have you ever met someone who knew more than God did? I think I know a little bit about the Bible. I think I know a little bit about religion. Who is blind? Who is deaf? Verse 20, seeing many things but you do not observe. Opening the ears, but you don't hear. And then it says in verse 21, the Lord is well pleased for his righteousness sake. He will exalt the law and make it honorable. Verse 22, but this is a people robbed and plundered. All of them are snared in holes and they are hidden in prison houses. They are for prey and no one delivers for plunder and no one says restore. There's two kinds of people, those who will come and experience the deliverance and those who will not. He says in verse 24, who gave Jacob for plunder and Israel to the robbers? Was it not the Lord? He against whom we have sinned, for they would not walk in his ways, nor were they obedient to his law. After repeated, repeated, repeated cries to repent and to turn from their sin and to embrace the Lord and to obey him, they ignored him and ignored him and ignored him and ignored him. And then in verse 25, therefore, he has poured on him the fury of his anger and the strength of battle. It has set him on fire all around, yet he did not know and it burned him, yet it did not. He did not take it to heart. Here's here's what here's the metaphor. Can you imagine pouring gasoline all over someone, lighting them on fire to get their attention? You're surrounded by the flames. I just need to bring something to your attention. What's that? You're on fire? Really? Hadn't noticed. The Lord is saying, I've disciplined you. I've repeatedly warned you. I've said, what's it going to take for you to listen? At what point will you obey? Do I have to set you on fire and put you out before you'll go? Whoo! guess what? You have my attention. How do you save someone who refuses to be saved? Have you ever had a wayward child? Okay, forget that. (laughs) Have you ever been a wayward child? And someone repeatedly says to you, what will it take to get through to you? Over and over again, the Lord says, you are captives to your sin. You are captive to your idolatry. You are in bondage. I will set you free. The Lord disciplines his children. He pours fire on them. They still Don't respond. How can you be on fire and not know it? I'm fine just the way that I am. I'm fine. What will it take for you to obey his word? What will it take for you to see and understand? Do you ever wonder why things constantly go bad for you? Could it be that there's something in your life? There's some issue of disobedience or there's some issue of willful stubbornness that God is trying to extricate. He's trying to get it out of your life. And so he disciplines you. Not because he hates you, but because he loves you. Sometimes the Lord will allow the fire of his discipline to bring you to a place of recognition and repentance and return. He set you free. He set you free by his wisdom. He set you free by his ability to manipulate time and space and history itself. He set you free by the Messiah, Jesus, the servant from sin.
from the punishment, the certainty of hell. He'd set you free. Not so that you can indulge yourself, but so that you could worship Him. And so we continue in the book of Isaiah, the freedom chapters. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, every once in a while we do need a little wake-up call. What will it take for us to hear? Lord, you've given the promise you would send your servant. Lord, you've given the promise you would save your people. Lord, you made it certain that some people will respond to the Messiah and some will not. And Lord, once again, you summon a world to sing, to sing in a public place, to worship you, to sing your praise. To glorify you that you are the God who has kept his promise and made good his word. And because you've kept your promise and you've made good your word, Lord, we can trust you. Lord, we pray that we would not trust the man-made fabrications, the false philosophies, and the weird things that we dream up but that, Lord, we would trust you and only you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.